Good morning, everyone. Have we all said good morning to each other? Yes? All said good morning to each other. Welcome to the second Sunday in Lent. And my theme for this morning was taken out of the lectionary readings for today, and it is Our Trust in God. And I have a book here which I'm going to introduce to the grown-ups in the sermon. It's called Ruthless Trust. And I wanted, by way of a call to worship this morning, to read to you just a small paragraph from that book to give you a bit of a taster to this morning's service. So here we go. The splendor of the human heart, which trusts that it is loved, gives God more pleasure than Westminster Cathedral, the Sistine Chapel, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony... Van Gogh's sunflowers, the sight of 10,000 butterflies in flight, or the scent of a million orchids in bloom. Trust is our gift back to God, and he finds it so enchanting that Jesus died for love of it. I'm going to open in prayer now, and I'd invite you just to halfway through to join me and say the Lord's Prayer together in whatever version you commonly use. And we'll pray that prayer out as a gathered congregation this morning. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do indeed praise you this morning. You who alone are worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. You who are our hope that is beyond all human hope. You who promised descendants as numerous as the stars to old Abraham and barren Sarah. You, who promised light and salvation in the midst of darkness and despair and redemption to a world that will not listen. Gather us to yourself this morning in tenderness. Open our ears to listen to your word and teach us to live faithfully as people confident of the fulfillment of your promises and trusting in the power of your name. Hear us now, dear fathers, together we say the prayer your son taught his first disciples. Our Father, Our readings this morning are firstly taken from Luke's Gospel, chapter 13, starting at verse 31. Luke 13, verse 31. And I'm reading from the New International Version. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, Go and tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, And on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, 
and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And our second reading is from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 3, starting at verse 17. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. gospel passage which has just been read to us <coughs> excuse me, uh, today is the main passage laid down in the lectionary for today. And probably you could sense just from hearing it read just now, for which thank you, um, that events are moving almost inexorably towards the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. I have to admit that before I studied this passage for today, I hadn't really appreciated how important it was in setting the scene for what was about to take place, the turning point in salvation history that's the cross, the pivotal place where the Old and the New Testaments meet in Christ Jesus. So this morning, I thought I'd take time in focusing on this passage from Luke's Gospel to actually explain what I mean by that scene setting that was taking place in this very familiar passage. I was sitting with my husband, Lindsay, just a few days ago. He's with me here today, and he laughed like a drain when he found out what I'd actually given a title to this sermon, which is Trusting the Process. As a good spouse, Lindsay had walked with me through a rather difficult process some few years ago in which I thought everything was going sideways and indeed everything did go sideways or it felt like that and I've never had the word sorry said to me so many times to the point where the person in charge of the process actually said, I'm really sorry, I'm saying sorry again. (laughs) I kept being told, trust the process. It wasn't an easy process, but it did turn out okay for me in the end, and I'm somewhat gratified going to say they've actually changed some of it since I went through it. I don't know if it was because of my experience, but they certainly changed it. It felt at the time as if this was a very human process that had some quite serious flaws in it. However, what that process actually did teach me was this, that there is only one being And there is only one process in which we can put our complete trust. The being is, of course, the living God. And the process that we can trust so completely is the process of salvation. 
Here in the Lucan text, Jesus is not placing his trust in human wisdom or the cunning of the Pharisees or on what he no doubt sensed about the political atmosphere that was going on all around him. He was setting his mind on higher things. He must have known in his heart that his father's plan was for him to proceed to Jerusalem despite knowing what was in store for him there. He would have been knowing that in going to Jerusalem he faced his death. He was going to play an essential role in his father's global purposes for redemption, a role that only he could play. And it's hard to take that in as we take in the wholeness of the humanity and the deity of Jesus. Then with a view from the other side of the resurrection, in our second reading, we heard words from the book of Philippians, Paul's words speaking to our hearts, encouraging us, and I discovered this week as well, that that word encouraging comes from a Latin root, the word cor, meaning the heart. So what Paul was doing in this passage was speaking to our hearts and strengthening our inner beings as followers of Christ at this time of Lent, to be like Jesus, not to set our minds on earthly things, but to remember that our citizenship is in heaven. Paul reminds us too that at this time of grace between the resurrection and the second coming, the time of the now but not yet of the kingdom, our citizenship is not here in this very fractured world but in heaven, from where we eagerly await Christ coming again, who, and here I'm quoting the scripture direct, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, one day will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. What a promise. What a process. What a hope for the future. And what a God. I mentioned a book earlier, and I was saying to Anne, I have to be really careful and tell you the author's name. It is not Bernard Manning. It's someone called Brennan Manning. And the book is Ruthless Trust. I thoroughly recommend this to you. I only got it 10 days ago, and I've already read it twice, and it's underlined all over the place. He says two very interesting things which I thought might be pertinent to what we're talking about this morning. The first thing he says is, childlike surrender in trust is the defining spirit of the authentic disciple. Shall I say that one again? Childlike surrender in trust is the defining spirit of the authentic disciple. And the second thing was quite a shock to me. He says this, the most urgent need in our lives is not for more spiritual insight, but to trust what we've already received. And just to let you know where I'm going this morning, I'm going to firstly look very closely at the Lucan passage, the gospel text for today, where Jesus was trusting his father's wisdom and not human wisdom. And through that, he was understanding that the process he was walking in towards his passion story was of heavenly origin and served a far, far greater purpose than was either visible to those around him or served the interests of those who were his enemies. 
And secondly, I'm going to suggest that we follow Paul's example in understanding that while many in our time live as enemies of the cross, and many others simply do not understand what we're about being followers of Christ, yet in the midst of them, and in the midst of all the things that are happening in our world, the chaos that we see across the globe, we're called to press on towards the goal, to win the prize for which God called us heavenwards in Christ Jesus. And to do that, we are called to go on trusting God, trusting Jesus, and trusting the process of salvation that Jesus won for us on the cross. If you're following in your Bibles, I'm going to now go right back into that Lucan text. And it starts at verse 31. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. When we first see these words, we think, what was Luke on about here? He seems to be quite positive about these Pharisees. They sound as if they're benign. Not so. About a, a chapter earlier, in the midst of a crowd of thousands of people, Jesus was warning the disciples to be on their guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which Jesus said was hypocrisy. Earlier in chapter 7, Luke himself comments that the Pharisees were those who had rejected God's purpose for themselves because they'd not been baptized by John. And there he means John the Baptist. And what he means there is the Pharisees had not repented of their sins and evil ways because John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Regardless of the Pharisees' intent, however, Jesus was not swayed by their seeming concern for his safety. The Pharisees were likely quite right about one thing, though. They probably were quite right saying that Herod was after Jesus. After all, Herod had just beheaded or had beheaded John the Baptist. And at 9-9, Herod, we know, was trying to see Jesus. Then in verse 32, Jesus leaves us no doubt what he thinks about Herod. He calls him a fox, an animal image that raises in our minds something that is sly, cunning, and voraciously destructive. Jesus was not, however, going to be deflected by that particular enemy either. Herod was not going to alter God's plan for salvation, one iota. Jesus' time was coming, but it was not yet at hand. And his time was not going to be brought to a close either by a totally self-interested sorry, self-interested and evil Herod or by the scheming, devious plans of any of the Pharisees. Still in verse 32, Jesus says, I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow and on the third day I will reach my goal. Jesus was going to go on right doing what he had been doing in his ministry until it was brought to completion. Apparently, In Semitic usage, the phrase today and tomorrow relates to an indefinite but limited time period. We're actually, according to the commentators, not actually sure what Jesus meant here. Maybe it was the time left for him to come to the cross. And that theory is borne out by the O Jerusalem, Jerusalem passage when we see it in Matthew's gospel, because Matthew's gospel 
indicates that Jesus actually said that on the Tuesday of Passion Week. Alternatively, Jesus could have meant the goal of actually reaching Jerusalem itself, because that's where he'd set his mind that he was going at that particular point in time. Or it could be the three-day period Jesus meant here was the time that was to come between the cross and the goal of the resurrection. We're just not sure. But what we are sure about is that Jesus at this point was not about to be frightened off course from what he knew to be his father's plan. Then verse 33 tells us that Jesus was going to keep on going, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Over the period of the Old Testament, God had sent many prophets to warn his people, and many of them had been killed right there in Jerusalem, like Zechariah, who Luke records at chapter 11, had been killed between the altar and the sanctuary in the temple. And uncomfortable though it is for us to read, both Matthew at chapter 23 and Luke at chapter 11 record Jesus saying that the generation which was alive at that time would be responsible for all the blood of all the prophets that had been shed since the beginning of the world. And when I read that, I thought, wow, that is heavy stuff. But then we need to remember that what was in sight at this point was the culmination of God's plan. The greatest event in history was about to take place. And that event was the means by which God had foreplanned that he would reconcile all things to himself. And then we move to the final two verses of our gospel text. This is verses 34 and 35. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house is left desolate to you. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a terrific passage, isn't it? A very memorable passage from our New Testament scripture. The first thing I want to draw out of it is that it reminds us of God utterances from the Old Testament. Things that were uttered direct by God at very significant points to very significant people or people who were about to become very significant in the history of the children of God. The first one that I would mention to would be Moses who heard God's voice speaking directly out of the burning bush. Moses, Moses. And Moses responded, here I am. And I guess your mind has already gone on to the second example that I can give you of that in the temple at the time of Eli and young Samuel, where Eli coaches Samuel what to say when God speaks. And the third time God says, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel responds, 
Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Then over in the New Testament, we hear Jesus' voice coming out on the Damascus road to the Saul who was about to go to Damascus to further persecute the Christians and saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul responding, who are you, Lord? So here in our passage with the words, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, they take on a slightly more significant meaning. What Jesus may have been uttering here was God's own words of lament over his people. With the desolation he describes, perhaps referring to Jerusalem itself as a city, which it's likely by the time Luke's gospel was written had already been sacked by the Romans. Here's a brief comment about the destruction of Jerusalem that comes from a biblical history book. Roman legions arrived at the outermost northern wall of Jerusalem, the Passover of 70 AD. The Romans built embankments of earthenwork. They placed battering rams and the siege began. The Roman army numbered 30,000 while the Jewish army numbered 24,000. According to Tacitus, there were 600,000 visitors crowding the streets of Jerusalem for Passover. After five months, the walls were battered down. The great temple was burned down and the city was left ruined and desolate except for Herod's three great towers at the northwest corner of the city. These served as a memorial of the massive strength of Jerusalem's fortifications, which Titus of Rome had brought to rubble. It's more likely, though, that Jerusalem mentioned here in our gospel text was being used as a metaphor for Israel. God was lamenting the desolation of his people that had been foretold by the prophets like Jeremiah. Jeremiah had lived about five or six hundred years before and he was called the great prophet of Jerusalem. Here's what he foretold. This is God speaking through the the words of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 12.7 says this, I will forsake my house, abandon my inheritance. I will give the one I love into the hands of her enemies. And yet... In the midst of the gloom and impending judgment of the O Jerusalem, Jerusalem utterance, we as Christians today can see hope. Hope in the imagery of the God of both Israel and of us as those who have been grafted into the vine, being cared for by the mothering protection of God, symbolized here in the imagery of the hen gathering her chicks under her wings, kept safe provided they're prepared to stay under her protection. Chicks protected from the voracious fox who in different guises prowls around our world too. As Christians reading back into the Old Testament, how often have you and I gone back to similar imagery in Psalm 91? Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings 
you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and your rampart. Back in our gospel text, there's hope too in the words, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These words are reminiscent of the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday recorded at Luke 19. But there the crowds who said these words were very soon to turn against Jesus just a few days later and be found shouting, crucify him. The hope of these words for us takes us to what is still in our future and that is the second coming and the Christ who is described in the beautiful passage in Philippians 2 as being the one who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross." Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's the same one who said to John, when John beheld him in the vision which John had on the island of Patmos, recorded for us in the book of Revelation, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Going back to Brennan Manning and his book, Ruthless Trust, may I conclude this morning by reading to you from his conclusion. This is what he says. What we need is a stubborn, irrefutable certainty that God is with us and loves us in our struggle to be faithful. We need a non-rational, absolutely true intuition perduring within us that there is something unfathomably big in the universe, something that points to someone who is filled with peace and power, love and undreamed of creativity, someone who inevitably will reconcile all things to himself. Then returning to the theme I mentioned in our call to worship this morning, Brennan Manning says this, The splendor of the human heart which trusts that it is loved gives God more pleasure and delight than the Westminster Cathedral, the Sistine Chapel, and all the human glories combined. Why does our trust offer such immense pleasure to God, he asks? Because trust is the preeminent expression of love. Thus it may mean more to Jesus when we say, I trust you, than when we say, I love you. Where am I in this, asks the author. And his response is simply this. I'm with you, clasping hands each morning and crying out with you in unison. Lord Jesus, I trust you. Help my lack of trust. Amen. We're going to take some time now in our intercession. Let's pray together for others. Heavenly Father, 
As we have just heard this morning about the desolation that took place in Jerusalem many centuries ago, our thoughts and prayers for others this morning turn to places in our broken world where the hands of humans have made places and people groups desolate. In this context, we think specifically of Syria, where there are children growing up amongst the rubble, children for whom there is not a day goes by, but they hear the sounds of rockets, bombs, and sniper fire. People in cities like Aleppo, where even today the Syrian army are bombarding their own with lethal lethal missiles. Father, we do indeed plead for peace in Jerusalem, but this morning we also earnestly ask for peace to be brought to Syria, for that nation to be able to have trusted government, stability and time to rebuild lives that have been broken by the chaos of two years of civil war. Lord, have mercy on them. We also, in the next few minutes of silence, name before you in our hearts other nations and people groups known to each of us individually or about which we have a particular concern where there is a need for peace to reign and for your comfort to come in the midst of desolation. Father, hear our prayers. We also raise before you our own city of Glasgow and ask for your peace to reign here too. Lord, use each of us in our daily lives to be heralds of your peace in all the different places where we come in contact with others. Open our eyes to see the opportunities you make for us daily to be your witnesses in this broken world. Give us boldness not to be afraid to be your instruments to our own generation, revealing to them by our lives and actions that there is a God and that he is interested in each and every one because he loves them with an everlasting love. We also take time this morning to ask for Katrina to be refreshed this weekend at this time when she is away from us. We also raise before you all the folks we know who are in membership here or who are otherwise known to each of us individually and who we know need your touch this morning. We name them in the silence in our hearts now. Father, be to them their all in all and let them know that you are with them. For we ask all these prayers, spoken and unspoken but said in our hearts, in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. May the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, rest and remain with each and every one of us, now and forevermore. Thank you.